Hello and welcome to April's Tarot Offering on social alienation and rejection. I started these monthly offerings to find venerations within our behavioural, creative and social histories. It subtly morphed into an archaeological expedition drilling into our Daedalian relationship to faith. This project is an attempt to seek out the questionable eggs and the treasure embedded in the perennial narratives that have evolved, shaped, and in some cases prepossessed the human experience for thousands of years. Tarot allows me to wander the halls into the fascinating realms of cognition, emotion, imagination, spirituality, behaviour, and last but not least, uh, energy. <laughs> Exploring, unpeeling, and getting curious about psychological schemas is what led me to the name Inner Demons. Life's journey can be seen as a sort of jihad, this holy war where we battle against our own prophesied inner demons and the eternal search for the holy grail within, which many of us seek externally to try to get to. Stories are our frames. The mass of our identities, bundles of reveries, complexities that can morph into doors, open gateways, mutate into portals. This month I've been thinking that art is the closest we can get to touching the divine. We might not know what that is because we can't define it in rational terms. In this, I'm going to be searching with everything I've got to find the proof that there is a divinity that lives inside the scars, King of Swords. The input and language of psychology, this psychological rationalism can often bear little weight in our ability to change behavioural patterns. The soul is not a clean idea, it is an experience, endless experiences, something to do with the depths of you, something that matters, love, connection, risk, death, tragedy, these things matter. In tarot, the same symbol can be interpreted different ways without forcing a choice between the differing responses, both of which can be right at the same time. This ambivalence, contrary to popular belief, can sometimes be prime material to work with. The pursuit of our own perception of truth and beauty not answers is one place I'd like to look into. This exploratory path versus our tendency to compulsively solve or fix approach. 
and I wonder if this is partly the same as the difference between what it is to understand and accept something versus our often automatic behaviours held together by deeply grooved in beliefs that cause us to cling to rituals and patterns that can lock us into the past with the intention to control everything in the present an attempt to regulate pain and exposure to its dense tissues and I also wonder what price we pay to consistently use our energies to forge that veneer of control especially when we acknowledge the discrepancies between the changes we say we want versus the choices we make is truth a weapon or an illusion a pencil or permanent marker if human beings are incapable of attaining the unknowable truth they can at least reach its essential radiance beauty Jodorowsky said that in his blood-soaked work the way of the tarot so beauty is where I'll aim to go with this too because I believe there's value to be had in that domain and where better to start than in the starless rivers that run through classical culture the rivers of the dead if I cannot get the gods above to change their mind I will appeal to the river of hell this line made me think of the Jungian concept of integrating the shadow one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light but by making the darkness conscious three of swords i was casually looking into portals to hell and i found one in rome italy probably gonna butcher the name but lacus curtius uh in other words lake of curtius um is a small pool on the Roman Forum, venerated by the Romans, even when they did no longer remember why it was a holy place. Five of Pentacles. When I thought about Lacus Curtius, it reminded me of a Ram Das quote I heard a few years ago. Your problem is you're too busy holding on to your unworthiness which could be something to chew on a while. So, in that sentiment, I guess what I'll be peeling the bark off is an idea that the issue may not be just what we're doing, it's our relationship with it. I'll be ripping through the fabric of social alienation and rejection. I'm almost certain one or two of us have lived in that sort of place at one point or another in our lives. And uh, back to the lake of hell. Um, according to Roman historian Levi, the pit appeared in the middle of Rome and absolutely nothing could fill it. An oracle prophesied that the pit would not close until a sacrifice was made. If no sacrifice was offered, 
the chasm would destroy everything around them. The site was named after Marcus Curtius, and upon realising that Rome's strength lied in the weapons and bravery of its citizens, the legend is fully armed and armoured. He rode his horse into the pit, Knight of Wands. It is said he rode straight into the underworld, the devil. The Acheron is the gentlest of the starless rivers, the river of woe. Running so deep into hell, it's synonymous with it. And again, the line I'm most obsessed with this month gallops back to me. If I cannot get the gods above to change their minds, I will appeal to the river of hell. Freud's interpretation of dreams was an exploration of the currents and flows of a psychological underland. Starless rivers, but beneath the sunlit uplands of the conscious mind, here and there surging power fully up. Hell is where you can go when somebody rejects you at any age. In The Body Keeps the Score, trauma expert Bessel van der Kolk unravels how this feeling of unworthiness after feeling rejected transforms into an ability for the body to sink into something like that space, like in the film Get Out. The main character Chris falls into a place where he is regarded as another species an alien in this strange, pernicious, unforgiving narrative, unable to fit into the racial pattern of a fully worthy and equally powerful human, unable to experience safety in the world he was driven to by his girlfriend, who, I won't spoil it, but she ends up moving pretty mad throughout the course of the film, <laughs> uh, to say the least. Um, but this sinking into the darkness feeling can quite easily become a lifetime of falling. The dropping into another's expectations. The years spent trying to fit your teeth into the mouth of someone else's, dead, alive or imaginary. The lives we build as shrines to our sorrows, our parents, our disappointments. We often use memories to hurt ourselves, but it's also a place where we can begin again, the place where we can learn to understand our bodies better, again, or for the first time. Making something unique from our pain, Queen of Cups, is the closest thing to beauty I could think of. When I pulled the moon card, I imagined a night filled with conflicted thoughts, but it could also be seen as an astonishing ball of light reflecting back to us our own solar truths, which Jodorowsky hints we could call beauty. After we are blinded by the light of another, 
we often uncover a new layer. And I know that's super poetic and dreamy language, but what if it could be true at the same time? What if by taking the time to sit with ourselves in our darkest thoughts and seek understanding instead of betrayal, instead of that dark, eviscerating hunger, what if we looked for compassion and sought to understand and accept versus the opposite of what that is? In an interview with psychoanalyst James Hillman, he described psychoanalysts, social workers, storytellers and the like as myth preservers. And myths, folktales, all are canamas with a language that gets inside the body. And it is a personal choice to dig deeper into our familial truths, pathologies, psychologies. It's just a few ways to understand the mechanics underlying the forces that propel us into the spin of painful patterns. In her rendition of La Llorona, Chavela Vargas sings, The light that illuminated me, Llorona, left me in the darkness. There are many, many interpretations of the La Llorona. The most common being that upon seeing her husband with another lover, she drowned their two children. As soon as she had killed them, the weight of her actions, her grief, her betrayal, her every emotion pierced her heart with a velocity that left her each night a trembling, screaming, weeping wound of regret and deafening loneliness. Getting into the flesh and bones of the feelings she provokes in our souls when we hear of her tragedies, sins and desperation. It reminded me of something, and I think it's from the NA book, but there's this bit about feeling alienated, ashamed, separated internally even by desperation. Loneliness is visceral. A sense of shame and sadness in the body, in the mind, can take hold. So, I guess an example of that is what I'll get into now. In a tarot reading, a seeker writes asking Jodorowsky, asking the cards how to live without his lover who died in a car crash. I'm going to do my best to echo its structure here, to, and to give context, he was 22, and had shut himself off from everyone for two years, including his parents. Um, and let's not forget that mere proximity to others is not enough to dispel a sense of internal isolation. He asks, how can I fulfill my promise to be with her when she's dead? When we make a promise to ourselves, we make it with our bodies as well as our minds when we really make one, how do we let go of that story, that expectation, the energy in the body that was waiting? 
You had love, but now it's in the afterlife. After two years, you don't want to commit suicide. You want permission to live. It seems like a betrayal to you to go anywhere else for love. To go to any other mental pattern in your seeking to feel love. In another person's story we encounter the remnants of a life lived on the edges. Janitor and edge outsider artist Henry Dager lived in a boarding house in Chicago, uh, the city of Chicago, uh, with a near total void of companionship until he was 80 years old. Um, his decision to get away from the loneliness manifested in an apartment turned hive of exquisite disturbing paintings. His invention of an imaginary world was perhaps an attempt to satiate one of the most basic human desires, to somehow fulfill the neural expectancy for connection, to be free of the perilous connotations of handling the real flesh without having to lose the essence of closeness in some way. In Olivia Lang's book, The Lonely City, she points out that the subject of some artists' loneliness was also the source of their sense of stigma or isolation. Vanderkog states that in trauma, the parts of the brain that have evolved to detect danger remain overactivated. The slightest sign of danger, real or misperceived, can trigger a stress response, flooding us with intense, unpleasant emotions, swirly, overwhelming sensations, making it difficult to connect with others, as closeness often triggers a sense of danger. The very thing we dread is the thing we most secretly covet, closeness with others. There is medicine to be found in the art of reciprocation. Being truly heard and seen by the people around us. Feeling that we are in someone else's mind and heart, three of cups. Experiencing a visceral feeling of safety is how our physiology calms, heals and grows itself. There isn't a prescription for friendship and love. These are complex and hard-earned treasures. You scarcely need a history of trauma to feel self-conscious and panicked at a convention full of strangers. But trauma can turn the whole thing into an intergalactic gathering of aliens. Its psychological consequences is not a mental disease Van der Kolk offers, but an adaptation. The 20th century brain disease model overlooks four fundamental truths. One, our capacity to destroy one another is matched by our capacity to heal one another. Restoring relationships and community is central to restoring well-being. Two, 
Language gives us the power to change ourselves and others by communicating our experiences, helping us to define what we know and finding a common sense of meaning, which can be super powerful. Three, we have the ability to regulate our own physiology, including some of the so-called involuntary functions of the body and brain through basic activities such as breathing, moving, and touching. And lastly, we can change social conditions to create environments in which children and adults can feel safe and where they can thrive. Ignoring these dimensions of humanity, our fundamental truths, can rob us of ways of healing and restoration this notion of being a patient rather than a participant in one's healing process can serve to separate those suffering whilst alienating them from an inner sense of self. And examining the interior machinery at play in us, um, Van der Kolk describes an elementary self-system in the brainstem and limbic system that gets activated when people are faced with threats. To people who are reliving a trauma, nothing makes sense. They are trapped in a state of paralyzing fear or blind rage, the mind and body in a constant state of arousal, as if in imminent danger. In turn, this triggers desperate attempts to shut off those feelings by freezing and disassociation two of swords. The recognition that we are the product of our conditioning is the first step to freeing ourselves from it. And that's from the book 78 Degrees of Wisdom by Rachel Pollock. She was the first tarot reader that really greatly influenced, influenced my approach to tarot. The first book I ever bought about tarot, um, like six years ago. Trauma victims are encouraged to get to know the sensations in their bodies. Being frightened means that you live in a body that is always on guard. Angry people live in angry bodies. The bodies of child abuse victims are tense and defensive until they find a way to relax and feel safe. In order to change, people need to become aware of their sensations and the way that their bodies interact with the world around them. In other words, physical self-awareness is key. But one of the most insidious effects of trauma is that it disrupts our ability to know what we feel, to trust our gut feelings. Having a comfortable connection with your inner sensations and trusting them to give you legitimate information empowers you to feel in charge of your body, your feelings, and yourself. A secure attachment combined with the cultivation of competency builds an eternal, eternal? <laughs> internal locus of control, a significant factor in healthy coping throughout life. Children with histories of abuse and neglect learn that their terror, pleading and crying 
tend to fall on deaf ears. Nothing they can do or say stops the abuse or brings attention and help. In short, they're being conditioned to give up when they face challenges later in life. If a mother cannot meet her baby's impulses and needs, the baby learns to become the mother's idea of what the baby is and survives by discounting, erasing its inner sensations and trying to adjust to its caregiver's needs. This means the child perceives that something is wrong with them. Children who lack physical attunement are vulnerable to shutting down the direct feedback from their bodies, blocking pleasure, purpose and direction. Nobody can treat a war or abuse, rape, molestation or any other horrific event. What has happened cannot be undone. But what can be dealt with are the imprints of the trauma on our bodies, minds and souls. The shattering sensations in your chest that you may label as anxiety or depression. The fear of losing control. Always being on alert for danger or rejection. The self-loathing, the nightmares, the flashbacks, the fog that keeps you from staying on task, from fully engaging in what you are doing. Being unable to fully open your heart to another human being. One of the paradoxical necessities of the recovery process is the need to revisit the trauma without becoming so overwhelmed by sensations as to be re-traumatized. We must pick up the hot flaming club, Ace of Wands, take a swing and begin to thaw the frozen sea within. The way to accomplish this is by learning to be present with these overwhelming emotions and their sensorial counterparts in the body. The avoidance of feeling the sensations in ourselves increases our vulnerability to being overwhelmed by them. In doing so, the sensory world becomes largely off limits, a labyrinth of tender perplexities to be broken into. Cognitive behavioural therapy techniques, CBT, can help people understand the interplay between their thoughts, feelings and behaviours. Intercepting automatic thoughts that can stimulate a whole emotional state, which fuels this cognitive triangle, triangle of our thoughts shaping our feelings and emotions. Whether those thoughts are valid or not, and you might do a behavior, a whole set of behaviors to adapt or cope with that feeling. When feelings such as rage, desperation and jealousy wind around and around the waist, creeping up and up, twisting into the psyche, this is the language of the gut. Jodorowsky's advice to his seeker was, the body in shock asks, how do I keep my promise to them? With them, how do I continue towards the completion of a holy union with them 
without them. For a while, the body can refuse answers or even bypass these lines of thinking, of questioning. So our mind takes other avenues to distribute its grief. It's not just love you have to accept. You need to carry a smaller inner revolution in order to tell yourself that that person left you. No matter how you've lost someone, the unconscious, the body speaks this way. The unconscious protests. One of the keys here is to accept. If you cannot accept, then you cannot receive. And if you cannot receive, that can get lonely after some time. In the cards, for me, there is a choice posed. It is depicted stashed inside the difference between the Two of Swords and Ace of Wands. This notion of carrying a magic wand, I guess feeling like we have agency and possibility with our bodies, our actions, versus holding two swords and being blindfolded. In May Sarton's Journal of Solitude, she writes, I envy painters because they can set their work up and look at it whole in a way that a writer cannot, even with a single page of prose or poem. But how hard it must be to give up a painting. I suppose I envy painters because they can meditate on form and structure, on colour and light, and not concern themselves with human torment or chaos. It is restful even to imagine an expression without words. So I'll end with a quote from Young after that beautiful one from May Sarton there. Um, his second offering to avoid sublimination. Only the living presence of eternal images can lend the human psyche a dignity that makes it morally possible to stand by his own soul and be convinced that it is worth his while to persevere with himself. Only then will he realize that the conflict is in him, that the discord and tribulation are his riches, which should not be squandered by attacking others. And that if fate should exact a debt from him in the form of guilt, it is a debt to himself. Strength. And if you're still here, thank you so much for listening. And if you like this, I hope to see you next month. So yeah, take care. Bye.